There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And I kept him on the screen, so I guess I have to introduce him. <laughs> and with me, with me tonight is retired NYPD Sergeant, professor at Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut, and a law degree, all that stuff. All his, He brings all these great things with him. Uh, professor Mike Geary. Mike, welcome to the show tonight. Good evening, Billy. Thank you for having me on. Always a pleasure. So, folks, what we saw this week, of course, uh, and everyone's been waiting for this, the gag order uh, in regards to the uh, Idaho quadruple case, Brian Koberger. Now, if we break it down, the prosecution wants the continuation of this gag order, and we'll go into why. Uh, The defense, especially wants the continuation of this gag order. One party, uh, well, actually two parties, the broadcast media and the print media want this gag order lifted. And we'll go into why they want it lifted also. And of course, one of the parents of one of the victims of Kaylee Gonzalez, Steve Gonzalez, and his wife, Christy, along with their attorney, Shannon Gray, they are petitioning to court because they also want this gag order lifted. Let's start out with um, with the defense. Uh, obviously, the defense, they don't want, of course, bad publicity. There's already bad publicity. Their client's been arrested for a quadruple murder. But they don't want more things getting out and prejudicial things to taint the jury pool so there's not a person... Uh, in Idaho, that believes in the potentiality that Brian Koberger is innocent or innocent to proven guilty. So the jury pool has already been uh, sort of poisoned. Uh, and there is a potentiality that there will be a request for change of venue. I don't know if the judge will allow it, but there is a potential that that could happen. Let's look into also, so how about the prosecution? The prosecution wants the gag order kept in place, and there's many reasons for the prosecution. Number one, and probably the biggest reason, are leaks. Leaks of the evidence that they have that they're not prepared as a procedural, as a strategy thing to release in in its entirety yet to the defense. So if this gag order is released, all of that could come down like a waterfall and all of the evidence that they have that they will at some point turn over in the in the way of discovery. But if the gag order is released, this evidence will just pour out of there, as I said, like a waterfall. The prosecution does not want that. In addition, the prosecution does not want the jury pool tainted any more than the defense does. So let's look into uh, the broadcast media. Freedom of the press, freedom of speech. Of course, they want to report everything because obviously they're in the broadcast business to make money. 
And right now, they've been just getting leaks from sources close to the investigation, which to me, as a former, as a retired police officer, that tears my heart out because there's someone in law enforcement leaking this information to the press. And if they get caught, they can be arrested for contempt of court. So, of course, the broadcast media, they just want everything. They want a free-for-all. They want everything. And they want to put it out there. They want to report everything. Now we can get to the Gonsalveses, uh, Steve Gonsalves, his wife, Christy, and their attorney, Shannon Gray. Uh, they want this gag order lifted. And I believe uh, that Steve Gonsalves, very early on in this case, he felt that his rights of free speech were being infringed upon by this gag order from the court. Because after all, his daughter was one of the victims that was slaughtered in this case. And the fact that he's not allowed to talk about it to whoever he chooses to, he feels that is uh, extreme uh, infringement on his rights, his, his First Amendment rights, freedom of speech. So those are all the reasons. And the, the, the other thing that we're going to get to also is cameras in the courtroom. And that's a, another whole separate issue. Now, Mike, I know I laid a lot on you in this opening monologue there. Let's start with the defense, Mike. Why does the defense uh, want this gag order to stay in place? Billy, they want the gag order to stay in place. And it's amazing that they, they and the prosecution both want it to be in place for some similar reasons and some different different reasons. But the, the uh, defense wants to get as fair. Look, they're going to have to have a trial somewhere in Idaho. And they're, they're hoping for Leyta County. Now, everyone in Leyta County and everyone in Idaho and in the United States has heard about this case. What you're trying to do as a defense attorney is to try and get a jury that has a jurors, a panel of jurors that has not made up their mind yet. They get 12 individual people. They may have some, they've read about this. They've heard about this case. They've thought about it. Maybe they've talked about it over, you know, breakfast with family. But if you get 12 people who can honestly say and swear to the to the judge that they can uphold their duty as a jury to give the you know uh, defense a fair shake, to be willing to listen to what they have to say, that their minds aren't made up at this point. And so that's really important for the defense, um, because without that, um, then there's no guarantee of a of a full and fair trial for um, Kohlberger. And he's an, he's actually entitled to a full and fair trial by a jury of his peers, meaning a jury of fellow American citizens, and that he has a right to um, have, have them come into court without preconceived notions of guilt or innocence, and that they are willing to at least hear his side of the case before they make their decision. You know, Mike, I think that... Uh... It's going to be tough to find impartial jurors mm -hmm. in this case, oh, yeah. and especially a small town like <laughs> Moscow, Idaho, uh, Latah County. Uh, it's gotten so much. It's gotten international exposure, international press. People from all over the world are waiting to hear the next step. What's going to go on in this case next? I, I want to give this uh, chronologically, Mike. So let's move on. Okay. to the prosecution. Why does the prosecution want this gag order to remain in place? 
Billy, they want it uh, to remain in place because, A, it has been effective, and it has been effective in really, there have been a few leaks, but it's been mostly effective in cutting down all kinds of um, rumors and innuendo and all kinds of crazy stuff that would go on if the uh, if the news media got hold of information about all the evidence in the case. Because what would happen is, say there was evidence about fingerprints or DNA or um, or, or witnesses' statements, and we can we have already seen how Bethany Frank's uh, witness statement uh, that was included in the affidavit in support of the probable cause warrant you know, was dissected crazily by, by the media going over and over and over. And so they do not want all of the, they, uh, these wild theories to be considered fact by the, by the uh, news outlets and suddenly being uh, getting into the jury pool, uh, being, people being made, uh, made aware of certain facts or certain things that are thought to be facts, which actually aren't. And so the jur- you don't want jurors to go in there expecting that they're going to see certain things and then they're not going to and they're not going to see them or they're, they're going to the jury pool is filled with people who um, believe that um, the DNA was you know uh, was wasn't properly handled by the Idaho lab and then suddenly it had to be rescued by the lab in Texas or whatever you know all kinds of things that people were saying about the uh, touch DNA on the knife sheath. And all the trouble that occurred. So they don't want that whatsoever because it, it taints the jury pool too. Absolutely. Iron Range Rube, thank you so much for the $10 super sticker. Happy Sunday, fun day, Bill and Michael. Thank you, Iron thank Range you. Rube. Very much appreciated. Thank you. So so we covered the, um, obviously, the defense, the prosecution, and now, of course, the press wants this uh, once this gag order removed, and for obvious reasons, you know, it's the broadcast media is making they're, they're making bucks. That's what they want to do. They want to make money. They want to report everything that is is out there. And some stuff that we might find as content creators on YouTube that is, you know, I'll say it unscrupulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the things they do is sensational, and you know, it's sort of like. The old expression, uh, that's the pot calling the the kettle kettle black, right? Right. Because they're pissed off because some YouTube content creators start inventing stuff just like they do, you know? And some of the stuff that we saw out here when content creators, when there was no gag order, there was some crazy stuff out there and really dangerous stuff. You know, uh, Kaylee Gonzalez's boyfriend was... Early on, it was said he was the killer, like just crazy oh. stuff. Someone said the one of the Idaho professors. So just really ridiculous stuff. So for any reason, even that reason, there was a good reason for that to be a gag order because it was just getting out of control. And then there was also a um, People magazine. I, I don't know if you remember this. and I'll point right to them because they said that uh, they had proof that Brian Koberger had been in that Greek restaurant that Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan waitressed at, uh, a server, I guess is the correct term these days. And it was, it turned out to be not true. And several broadcast stations reported that like it was gospel. Mm -hmm. So when you see this happening, it's not just the content creators, although I will say they were the worst, but it's not just the YouTube content creators. It was some of the 
broadcast stations that were trying to throw stuff out there that was unvetted or what is their idea of vetting something you know one person tells you and you don't you know do an investigation on well where did that come from so that's you know that's some of the proof here that and again i i found it amusing that the broadcast media was so pissed because oh all these people are making stuff up well just like you do <laughs> you know right you get a little story a uh, little and you figure out a nice slant on it and you run with it i mean think of how how dangerous it was for that poor uh delivery truck guy uh the food truck guy or um and, and the, the hoodie i'm sorry the guy in the hoodie who was getting the, the food standing behind them they edited the tape people edited the tape to make it look like he was actually following them that was really scary in the beginning could you imagine being that young man mike he was he was convicted tried and convicted based on that video early on and like it was probably dangerous to be him yeah absolutely you know? Absolutely. And, you know, and it just went crazy. And then the bartender, you know, uh, because they heard uh, Ms. Gonzalez say um, Alex or something like that was the bartender or Al or I can't think of his name, uh, but said, oh, the bartender, you told the bartender something. Suddenly it was like, oh, my God, the bartender did it. The bartender must know something. And, and he had a reason to kill. Like it was just crazy. But look, you know. They they live on ratings, just like the old print newspapers. They're looking for something that's sensational. If it if it bleeds, it leads. And well, that's what they want to do. They want to, you know, a little bit of rumor. One person says, I think so, and I think so, or it's my or the word it's my the phrase, it's my opinion turns into fact. And they but they're doing it, they want the gag order lifted because of the ratings. The, the Absolutely. Rating. Mike, here is a Shannon Gray. The I'm not going to play this whole thing because this okay. is a whole hour and something hearing, but he's he's talking to the attorney as to why, as per him and as per the Gonsalves, that the gag order should be lifted. Can I proceed, Your Honor? Yes. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, first, Your Honor, we'd like to um, thank you for apologizing to the victim's family. Um, I think it was an emotional day for them. And uh, they appreciate your apology. I know that they took that part up. Thank you. Uh, I first want to start with the procedural history of this non dissemination order, if I could. On January 3rd, 2023, the Judge Marshall ordered, uh, submitted a non dissemination order. And in that order, it applied to parties uh, in the action, which would have been the prosecution, the defense, and any agents, investigators involved in it. After that non-dissemination order was issued, I reached out to uh, the prosecutor's office to see if I could get Judge Marshall's email. For some reason, I don't know if they took it down, but I couldn't find it online. Um, and they informed me that they were not privy to give me that information. Um, then on January 13th, um, there was a Zoom call that was requested by Judge Marshall. That Zoom call, was requested at one o'clock on the 13th. Uh, I was received an email at 12.58 from Judge Marshall's clerk requesting a Zoom call to speak to all interested parties. Uh, the Zoom call occurred at four o'clock. You know, I just wanted to say, and I don't know if you folks noticed or you watched this, but when Brian Koberger walked into the courtroom, if you look at the back of his jacket, mm -hmm. um, 
it's all curled up. And that's because he's undoubtedly wearing a bulletproof vest. And that's when you sit down, it rolls up like that. And you could see, if you could see it when he walked in, he's, he's absolutely wearing a bulletproof vest. So I just, I just thought that I would point that out. During that meeting, the judge reminded us, all the parties involved, uh, it was the prosecution, it was the defense, it was myself, it was the attorneys for the victims, families, uh, the attorneys for the witnesses, I believe were there as well, a number of attorneys, uh, and reminded us that her non-dissemination order uh, mirrored that of Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6. As part of that hearing, and I think it's details here, she talks about the rule applies to all lawyers participating in the Zoom meeting, the state and the defense and all attorneys for the witnesses. When she had that Zoom meeting, and I've requested the transcript from that Zoom meeting and haven't been able to receive it yet uh, from Judge Marshall's court, uh, so we can have a full transcript of what went on that day. But as part of that meeting, I had questioned uh, Judge Marshall regarding the victim's family and whether or not they were allowed to speak to the media based on the fact that she had said all interested parties as well in the, in the initial non-dissemination order. Um, I didn't receive any clarification. I was just instructed to go back to Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6 as well as uh, I was told and this is in quotes from her Zoom where they take their duties in that most regard in conducting themselves and advising the clients. I took that as I should tell my clients to be quiet. Um, she reiterated that again in the Zoom call by saying that my I had ethical duties extract above and the, the uh, Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct uh, for commentary of Rule 3.6. And she reminded me later that lawyers have a responsibility in giving advice to their clients. Um, I disagreed with Judge Marshall on almost every point during that meeting. Um, as well as, if I had known that we were going to be discussing the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct in, those, uh, in that issue, I would have prepared. But only having a three-hour notice uh, did allow me, and not knowing what the subject of the meeting was going to be, didn't allow me to address those issues at that time. Now, after the non-dissemination order in January 3rd and then the January 13th, 2023 uh, meeting, the judge amended the non-dissemination order uh, on January 18th. And she basically repeated the same order, except for she added the attorneys for any interested party in this case, including attorneys representing witnesses, victims, or victims' families, as well as parties to the above entitled action. So you can see the difference is that the first one dealt with parties to the case. The second one went way over the top, addressing all attorneys that might be associated with the case or any attorneys that might have an interested party in this case. So that's where we are today. I filed the motion based on that additional language. Now, I'd like to get into some of the issues here. It's very clear that I am not a party to the case and the victim's families are not a party to the case. That's very clear through all the case law, as well as... Can I, can I interrupt you? Yes. There's, there's no dispute about that. Okay. Then I, you're not, you're not, 
uh, your, your clients are not parties. The only parties of this case are the state and Mr. Culver. That's that's and that's that's clear. That's clear in the in the case law uh, with regard to any victims or victims' families. There are constitutional protections and statutory protections for victims and their families. That's that's well established. So let's get into the actual non-dissemination order itself. How it addresses to me personally as the attorney for. The victim's family. Um, this non-dissemination order, of all of the cases and all of the motions that were filed, and referencing every case that was listed in this case, none of them applied to a victim's attorney, an attorney representing the victims. The INLV trap tap case was an attorney uh, speaking about a judge who he was in front of. The good case was a defense attorney that spoke to the media. The Mezabov case was a defense attorney and a prosecutor. The Morrison case was a defense attorney and a press conference. Varner versus Delahunty was an attorney and a judge, all parties to the case. Cutler was a defense attorney, U.S. v. Cutler. Zao versus Slav was a defense attorney. Erwin versus Dow were the prosecutor's actions and speaking to the media. Shepard v. Marshall, Maxwell is a probability regarding the prosecutor's actions prior to trial. None of those things apply to the victim's family or the victim's attorney in any way. Now, I do agree that the court has the power to control those that are parties to the case and that are involved in the case in some way. But we have to define that, what means involvement in the case. Part of that is that the judge referred to the Idaho Rules of Professional Conduct 3.6, probability. She references that multiple times as the basis for her non-dissemination order in this case, and how it might apply to me. If you'll read the first paragraph, a lawyer who participates or has participated in the investigation or litigation of a matter shall not make extrajudicial statements. That is not me. It never has been me. It can't be me, because I'm not involved in the litigation. She also says can I, to, can I can I ask you a question about yeah. that? Because I mean I think the case law uh, is is quite clear that uh, attorneys who are representing witnesses can be uh, can be restricted to some degree, partly uh, because they have access to particular information that may not should not be shared with the public. Um, and if I'm recalling correctly, um, the state has suggested or has determined that your your clients are witnesses potentially. So that's 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 kind of the issue. Go ahead. As part of that is that let's just make it clear: the victim's family has never been involved in this investigation ever from the get-go. When, after Mr. Kohlberger was indicted, we received no information about anything regarding the prosecution. Nothing. They wouldn't even tell us that a grand jury was being impaneled for Mr. Kohlberger. They told us that there was a grand jury that was being impaneled. And common sense, we figured it out, because he's the only guy in the, in the county. But they wouldn't even relay that information. They haven't relayed, given 
give us any information regarding the investigation of the case. But the most critical part of it is that the prosecution has never, ever interviewed the Gonzalez family. So how in the world would we ever be able to be witnesses in this case? And for what purpose would we be? If you're asking about the sentencing spaces, purposes, that's post-conviction. That's after he's been convicted on the case. Prior to trial, we're not any witnesses. And that falls into completely different statutes. That falls into the restitution statute. It falls into the Dixon statute. I just handled that matter in front of the Lori Vallow case, where the judge, I had a motion. The defense did not want the victim's family to appear. And so the judge had to make a determination whether they were immediate family. So, you know, it's, I'm going to remove this right now because uh, he could, uh, he could talk forever. This guy, basically he's just, he's arguing that he shouldn't be uh, and the Gonsalveses shouldn't be part of this gag order because they're not witnesses. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not um, being interviewed. They were never interviewed by the prosecution. However, if you recall early on in this investigation and I, hate to say anything derogatory about Steve Gonzalez because he, he lost his daughter, but he was being interviewed quite often by different press agencies. And that is specifically, you know, and when law enforcement try, tells the, the family, the victim's families of what's going on, they don't want it. And especially early on when everything had to be secret and even further on the investigation, they want the investigative tactics, the investigative leads, the investigative steps, the evidence. They, they want all that to be kept secret. So if they told that to, say, Steve Gonzalez, and then the next night he's on Banfield, that's very not very good for the case. No, Billy, yeah. The early on, the, the, the Gonzalez family seemed to be out front and center more so than the other families. Now, that was well before the gag order even the first gag order uh, from like January was even put in place. And I think the, the prosecution probably was giving some sort of updates gently every week or so, giving them some, a little bit of information to let them know that, look, this isn't going to be a cold case. You know, we've got some good leads here. We can't really give you, make you privy to everything, but trust us, we've got some good leads. We're working hard. You know, we're, we're going to solve this case. Don't worry about it. And then if they get burned by releasing some sort of a little bit of information like the um, was it the coroner, the deputy coroner released some information in her opinion about uh, wounds, knife wounds or something, I think, on Kaylee's hands, things like that. Um, she, know, she actually had released some stuff, the order of which they were attacked and what yeah. it meant. And yeah. And then the father, I, I know Steve Gonsalves had said that, you know, he felt because of that they were targeted. So all of this stuff was getting right. out there and the prosecution did not want that out there no. because again, that's tainting the jury pool. It's tainting what even the public knows. Right. They wanted, they were, they were being respectful to like any, you've, you handled hundreds of homicides and you've had to tell family members and make that fateful notification. It's a terrible thing, but quite often, maybe not all of them, but you let family members know things are going along. Don't worry. You know, we've, we've got this, we're, you know, it's, we're doing it. Don't, don't worry. It's not been put off to the side somewhere. We're, we're taking this, you know, we're going to, we're running with it. You've done that many times. And how would you feel as a prosecutor 
or the homicide detective involved in this case, hearing what you said 24 hours ago on the air now and being put all, put out all over the place. That's confidential information that wasn't ever meant to be shared with the public. It was meant to just let the families know uh, respectfully that we're doing okay. We got this going on. Don't worry. Whatever you hear to the contrary, don't doubt our abilities here. And I think they were burned in the beginning. So there was a kind of uh, uh, maybe the fan, the relationship got off on the wrong foot and it's got, it hasn't gotten any better. And Mr. Gonsalves, God, God bless the Gonsalves family and our prayers to them. But, um, you know, they may have made a couple of missteps in, in terms of talking a little bit more freely to the public than uh, to the press than they should have. This is just a, a little bit of uh, some of the false allegations that were made in the very beginning. He was the most generous person I've ever met. I miss him and I'm going to miss him every day for the rest of my life. Darren Duncan was in the middle of mourning his best friend Brent Kopaka when he first saw it. Posts online falsely claiming Kopaka was was somehow tied to the deaths of four college students in Moscow, Idaho. He was a soldier who went over there to fight for us, and now I got to defend him after he died. He's not here to talk about it or defend himself. None of it was true, but Darren unfortunately wasn't alone. Still reeling in its grief, the Moscow community was also hit by a storm of misinformation and lies that would make healing seem impossible. For anyone intrigued by the Idaho murders, there's been plenty of content out there over the last six months. YouTube, Reddit, TikTok, you name it. On November 13th, 2022, four students, Kelly Gonzalez, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin were stabbed to death in the middle of the night at their off-campus home at the University of Idaho. Then, when there was no arrest for several weeks, some web sleuths decided to take the investigation into their own hands. I just want to give a quick and crazy update that's happening. This is what I think happened in Idaho murders. All four of them had been stabbed. You know, I question, though, uh, why people on YouTube listen to people that have zero credentials. Why would you listen to them? You know something? It took me 27 years to learn what I learned on the NYPD. It took me, I was 22 years as, as a sergeant, 16 years at the detective bureau, 10 years in homicide. And it, it's not something you gain through osmosis or from watching true crime shows. So shame on these people that listen to these idiots. <laughs> and I say idiots because they are idiots. Yeah, it's bad enough that you have people creating wild theoretical stuff. This is why I think this would happen or this person, this professor is the person who I imagine losing my deductive reasoning did it. And for these particular reasons, it's bad enough. You've got these people out there that are flying high on something, but, but the problem is the public then starts to run with it. And not everyone, of course, but enough of the public starts to run with it where it really creates a problem for, the people in Idaho, the police, the politicians, the local people, because they don't know what to believe. And that's the sad part about it. And then uh, it just spirals downward into rumor and innuendo being taken as fact. It's, cra it's just crazy. Let me play a little more of this. 28-year-old Brian Koberger was just arraigned. His trial is set to begin in October. For so many in the Moscow community, 
the national online response to the murders clouded what really should be at the center of the story, the lives lost. They loved life. They lived life to the fullest, both of them. Kaylee Gonzalez and Maddie Mogan were both seniors and longtime best friends. If I had one or two words to describe Maddie May, it would be just an angel. She just made me proud. One of their other roommates, 20-year-old Zanica Nodal, was also killed that night, alongside her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin. Zana was just an incredible person. I've never met someone like Zana before, ever. Ethan was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity and loved sports. He was also a triplet. His brother and sister were both students at the university. From family members to classmates to community members, most were in some way affected by the senseless murders. And in the months that followed, conspiracy theories and false allegations have reopened the community's wounds. We've been about to kick this off. We have about 135 people waiting on us already. Last time we had 18, 1900 people in the live chat. It's a drunk turkey show, mother trucker! Daniel J and his two friends dreamed up the idea for the Drunk Turkey YouTube show and podcast over late night talks and a lot of beers. The three friends asked we don't use their last names due to safety concerns. Our initial goal was conspiracies, uh, UFOs, aliens, ghosts, things of that nature. Daniel R, who goes by Big Blue, is one of the co-hosts. When did you guys really start to see subscribers change? I think it was after, it was for sure when we started doing the Idaho case. Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Murder Mystery Show. You know, just uh, shame on people for listening to this crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's shame on them. Uh, you know what? Look, I could increase my subscribers tenfold if I was sensational, but I would never do that because there's pride in doing this. And there's also, there's, a, there's, there is the real investigation and there's the real things that happen and there's a real way to report it. And I don't think the sensational part of it is, is how you, you want to tell the truth and you want to tell what happens, what really happens in investigations. What are the police thinking? What are the investigators thinking? What is the FBI thinking? What is the prosecution thinking? Why is a grand jury not a flaking uh, against Brian Koberger in this case, the way so many people reported? Oh, my God, they're violating his rights. No, they're not. No, they're not violating his rights. A grand jury is a secret. Mike, you, you're better off talking about that than me. You're a lawyer. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's been in the Constitution since uh, the Bill of Rights was um, you know, ratified and was 1791. They, uh, you look at the Fifth and Sixth Amendments of the Constitution, it talks about right to an attorney, right against compelled self-incrimination, right to a grand jury hearing. Um, all of these things, it's not, it, it's not a secret that we have a grand jury system, but the grand jury meets secretly, quietly, without announcing it to the world. And everybody knows that if you commit a felony in the United States, that there's going to be prob probably a grand jury impaneled or they'll have you know the other uh way to go at the probable cause hearing depending on what state you're in but you know so the, this idea that yeah it was um a sneaky attack to get around the constitution is just incredible it's actually following the constitution 
And when you see these content creators, like you just showed Mr. Big Blue and these guys, you know, they start off drinking beer and, and, and they came up with this crazy idea to talk about UFOs. If people are talking about UFOs and Brian Koberger case and analyzing the two subjects, you know, you got to kind of wonder, shame on them for doing it, but shame on people for actually tuning in. I think there's a lot of people starved for information, but the problem is they're they're going to crazy sources and they're being misled. And, and that's the sad part about it is, you know, there's so much information out there that you can get that's real, that's accurate. We talk about policing and criminal justice and trials and arrests and investigations from a point of view of experience. Having done this myself for 20 years, Bill for like, I think 21 years, you for like 27, 28 years. Uh, come on. This, we, we tell it like it actually is without all the embellishments and crazy conspiracy theories. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you didn't subscribe to our YouTube, what are you waiting for? Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. If you want to uh, support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel members, our subscribers, and we really appreciate them. They do an amazing job. You know, one of the biggest things that, uh, well, the biggest evidentiary things we talk about in this case, of course, is the touch DNA on the knife sheath, on the button of that knife sheath. Now, already there's people all over the place trying to disqualify that um, for whatever reason. There's very few experts in this field. There's very, very few. In fact, one of the biggest experts in the world probably invented the techniques that are being used to process or investigative genetic genealogy is C.C. Moore. And I just want to play a little bit of her interview a few months ago on CNN because she explains it because it's not the easiest thing to understand for the layman or even for a police officer or someone that's well-educated. It's, it's a whole new field, a whole new technique. And even writers who are writing books on this, I don't think they understand it either. So I'm going to put CC Moore on. So we'll listen to her for a few minutes. Thank you for being here. What does this mean? Single source of male DNA, which I'm reading from the affidavit. It means there were no other DNA detected on that, meaning sometimes you can have a mixture. You can have multiple people's DNA. You want to have single source DNA, if at all possible, because that really just ties that one person to that item. Now, it was likely that this was touch DNA. Certainly it's possible there was blood. They didn't tell us what type of DNA, but most likely it was touch DNA. And that would typically be just a few skin cells. This might've been a very small amount of DNA, but because of today's technological advances, we can detect even the tiniest bit of DNA. How reliable is touch DNA if it is skin cells in comparison to say blood? It's a great question. It is more transferable. So of course you would like to have blood. You would like to have semen or saliva and they might, you know, they haven't shown all their cards. We don't know all that they have. 
But touch DNA, now that we can use it because of the sensitivity of our equipment, it also means you have to be more cautious about using DNA as your only evidence. So it's a really positive thing that they clearly have other evidence. This is just one piece of it. We have seen DNA, touch DNA transfer in other cases. Of course, it's fairly rare, but it is something that you have to be aware of and make sure that there are other aspects of the case also pointing at the same person. Cece, good news, I guess. It's hard to commit murder without leaving something behind. That's right. Yeah, I've been saying this for weeks. That type of violent, intimate crime, it is virtually impossible not to leave something behind. Folks, we've been saying that since mm -hmm. the beginning. Locard's principle of exchange, Dr. Edmund Locard. You go into a crime scene, you bring something from your body, from yourself into the crime scene. You leave the crime scene, you take something from the crime scene with you. Locard's principles of exchange, transfer of evidence. She just said it better than I could. You'll believe her because she's on TV even if you are a criminology PhD student. So I am not at all surprised they were able to find something. Even if he tried hard not to leave something, you still would. And that is great news, because what it means is that anyone who perpetrates this type of crime in the future should be aware that they will be identified, they will be caught. There really is no reason that we should see serial killer, serial rapist moving forward. This guy, you know, potentially could have become a Ted Bundy or even a Zodiac, not identified 50 years later. But because of the DNA technology, the advances that we're seeing, both in investigative genetic genealogy and the ability to use tiny amounts of DNA, we can identify someone, whether they are in the law enforcement database or not. Cece, the, the cases that you have cracked for which you have become famous are the cases that necessitate you putting together with, in connection with a private lab, a very complicated family history, family tree, and tracing back cousins and generations. That doesn't seem to be what took place here. Well, I don't think we can reach that conclusion yet. Investigative genetic genealogy is simply a tip. It's a lead generator. It should never be used as evidence against a suspect. And so it is proper that it would have been left out of the affidavit, in my opinion, because it should not form the basis of an arrest warrant. And so even though they didn't put it in there, I don't think we can... You know, folks, that's, this is so great, and that's why I put this on, because we have been saying from the beginning, probable cause, and I'll recite the definition like I do on almost every show, of facts and circumstances that would allow a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person being arrested committed the crime. So in the case of Brian Koberger, it was not just this DNA, on the, this touch DNA on the knife sheath, it was numerous things. It was the, the car, the Hyundai Elantra. It was his cell phone pinging at the location. It was the uh, the surveillance they did on the house in Pennsylvania. All of these things, when I say connect the dots, I don't mean to be obnoxious. I mean connect the dots. And that's what established the probable cause. Like C.C. Moore said, this should have never been used as the probable cause device to arrest Brian Koberger. So they built 
a mountain of probable cause before they actually pulled the trigger and made the arrest. Mike. Yeah, Billy, probable cause, as you say, it's a, it's a certain quantum of evidence that comes from a number of sources, could be one, two, three, four, five, or six, that leads that police officer, the detective, the homicide detective, to believe that probable cause exists, that the person did the crime, and they're the ones who, who are most likely guilty. Um, we, we uh, yeah, if the, if the only thing they had was a touch DNA, and it was a Firmed by the genetic genealogy research, that's one thing, and that would be just one thing. That's really strong, but it really wouldn't serve as the uh, as probable cause all by itself. The fact is, you listed a whole number of other factors that, even in the absence of the DNA, all those other factors probably could have supported uh, uh, the affidavit right here. I was, I was reading through it; uh, could have supported the. Uh, the affidavit for the uh, arrest warrant. Um, so yeah, it's and even I, I think in the the Washington uh, search warrant, the Washington State University search warrant application, the search warrant specifically said that they would uh, ask the judge that if at any time the uh, the DNA came back to be incorrect in its conclusions, that that should not uh, you know vitiate the probable cause that has already been established by other factors that they had already established and put into their own warrant. So yeah, it's, she's really, she's right. You got to be careful and saying like, that's the, it's circumstantial evidence. It's really powerful. But in this case, there was so many other things that in the absence of the DNA would have supported probable cause anyway. Absolutely. Let me, let me play a little more CC. I find this, Investigative genetic genealogy, fascinating. It's great. I think it is not just, the, it's here. It's not the wave of the future. It'll make the FBI CODIS database absolute, uh, you know, it's going to do away with it at some point. It's because this is here. This is the wave of, well, it's the wave of the future, but it's here right now. And it's unbelievable. Rule it out. We don't know whether it was what initially identified him as a person of interest, and then they looked more closely at that tip about the car, or it could have gone the other way, where they identified him through that tip about the car, and at the same time, they were working on the genetic genealogy and may have built his family tree to see if it was consistent with what they were seeing. I have done that in some cases. If there are persons of interest, you can very quickly rule them out or potentially not be able to exclude them, which is what would have happened in this case. Maybe they could have co connected him to one or more of those matches, maybe a second, third, fourth cousin, and said, look, you know, this is somebody who is a strong person of interest. So I think there's still a lot for us to learn on what happened here. I do think it is highly likely that an advanced private outside lab was used, at least somehow in this case. You know, we've all been hearing whispers of this. There's been lots of leaks that investigative genetic genealogy was used. So I do right. think that they were at least trying to or in the process and, of doing and, so. And you make a great point. They, they, of course, don't have to put in this affidavit a probable cause. They, the prosecutors, all that they have. CeCe Moore, that was tremendous. I think that's the best I've heard it explained on any channel. And Cece Moore is fantastic. She is probably the uh, the dean, I would say, of uh, investigative genetic genealogy and the whole thing of uh, building these family trees. And, you know, Mike, we've used the term 
well, they should have surreptitiously co collected the DNA <laughs> millions of times. And now even the press is starting to use it. I think they've been watching us, you know, but that's taking someone's DNA without a search warrant. If someone discards a cup or throws away uh, a napkin or a tissue, you as law enforcement can retrieve that, put it in a paper bag or a paper container because you don't want to put it in plastic because plastic degrades the evidence. You put it in a paper bag, you seal it, you you sign it and date it, and that's the DNA from so-and-so, test it, and now you have an exemplar. Yeah, uh, any suspect, suspects who discard tissues, napkins, uh, a water bottle or something like that, or leave it, you know, leave it aside, uh, anything, cigarette butts, they are leaving it, or they, it's trash, they throw it in the ground, they are displaying to the world that they have no reasonable expectation of privacy in their trash. And the Supreme Court ruled on this case, uh, Green, I think it was the Greenwood case, California versus Greenwood, like 35, 40 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have any sort of expectation of privacy in your garbage. So the fact that the Koberger's family were putting, uh, were putting their garbage out like everyone does, you put it at the end of your driveway, whether the, you put it actually on the street or you put it on the curb on your own property, it doesn't matter. You have no expectation of privacy. People are going to open it up. They're going to look inside. They're going to take it, throw it in the garbage. It's going to be handled at a dump site. So um, therefore, the surreptitiously uh, uh, getting DNA is not a violation of Brian Koberger's Fourth Amendment rights as interpreted by the United States Supreme Court. Absolutely not. So that's a very bright, uh, good police move in that case what they did was fabulous you know mike i just want to ask you a question and playing devil's advocate if say they let's for uh argument's sake they lost the knife sheath as a piece of evidence would that concern you at this point yeah if they had it and they lost it somewhere no no i don't mean that if the a judge threw it out i don't oh, mean oh. they i, I i'm okay. sorry okay what i meant what if the judge Threw that piece of evidence yeah. out, which probably wouldn't happen. But say, say they did. Say that happened. Well, Are if they, it happened, got a strong case. Absolutely, you do. And and I had mentioned that Washington State University search warrant application. And back here on the very last page, the uh, the uh, officer who signed it, um, Dawn Daniels, wrote in the very last paragraph, asking the court for a search warrant. I am asking the court specifically not to consider the disclosure about DNA as being as supporting the existence of probable cause. So there, what she was asking is that, you know, your honor, we have so many other things and DNA is part of it. If the DNA for any reason is found to be in the future, uh, a violation, the retrieval is found to be a violation uh, for any reason of, of, of uh, constitutional rights or, or, or it doesn't, it's not accurate or whatever the case may be. You have to throw it out. Don't include it. There are so many other things. Yeah, that's if, Mike, that's what I was referring to, the yeah. fruits of the poisonous tree. Right, exactly. But here there are so many other things that were gathered uh, totally separate from the DNA. So you don't have to worry about the fruits of the poison tree doctrine here because you're going to probably have you might have a fingerprint. You might have that footprint. Remember that that footprint with the, with the sneaker. That might be part of it. Yes. You're going to have his uh, 
the f cell phone pinging. You're going to have the pictures of his Hyundai. You're going to have, um, you know, the bushy eyebrow uh, description uh, that uh, uh, Ms. Frankel, uh, Bethany Frank, uh, gave. So there's so much evidence that is totally not tied in any way to the uh, DNA found on that knife. Um, you you still have an excellent um, uh, circumstantial case. Absolutely. You know, Mike, I think that even CeCe Moore mentioned she would be shocked if he did not leave his DNA in right. the crime scene. Right. And the, the folks, I know you've heard this before, but I've lived it in homicide. When someone kills someone with a knife, invariably they kill themselves. And especially this was a quadruple murder. So the chance that he cut himself or Barbara Butcher, who's been to over 680 murder scenes, said it's 99.9% chance he cut himself during this and left his blood DNA right. in that crime scene. If that's the case, that sort of diminishes the value of the of the knife sheath. And the, but it's still it, it still paints the whole picture, you know, from, from point A to B to C to D. It gives you the whole picture. I want to put a little bit of um because again, this shows I want to play Brian Enton again, a little snippet of him interviewing Howard Bloom. And what CC Moore was was inferring was the Idaho lab found this lab called Othram. It's in Texas. Mm -hmm. And they specialize in this DNA procedure. There was this is, I think, the fourth DNA procedure that they started out with something called RFLP, which stood for Restriction fragment length polymorphism. Mm -hmm. That was the first technique. Yes. Then there was go. something called short tandem repeats, STR. And actually, uh, and then there was something called PCR, polymerase chain reaction. Now there's something, and it's it's short for something that's called SNPs. And that's where it had she was referring to over a million markers. So that's where they can take a tiny, tiny bit of DNA and produce millions of markers. That's the, when they build these family trees. And just very recently, this 15-year-old rape pattern in Boston, that's this attorney from New York has just been arrested for it. That was built through gen investigative genetic genealogy through this SNPs technique. So it's, again, it's way above my pay grade to explain this. I am not a scientist, but I understand a little bit of it that I can sort of communicate with you a little bit, but let's put Howard Bloom on. He acts as if he knows about this. Your recent articles on the case. Appreciate you taking the time tonight. I want to talk about the testing uh, of this knife sheath uh, and what you have learned about it. Well, as you pointed out earlier, the police were all along moving forward, even though we in the media, the public didn't know what was happening. And they were focusing on Brian Kohlberger, they, but they couldn't completely make the case so they could issue an arrest warrant. What they did is they had the knife sheath and they had on the button of the knife sheath. Mike, I just want to ask something quickly here. Um, is it other jurisdictions in New York? We don't need an arrest warrant. We just need probable cause. We go get the guy. We lock him up. If he's in another state, he has to get extradited. But in New York, we almost never apply for an arrest warrant because if we do, the subject has an absolute right to counsel. And we, if we want to talk to him, 
we don't want to have an arrest warrant because then a lawyer attaches and we can't interview him. So yeah, we I go into other states in New York and we try to grab the guy with, with just probable cause, not an arrest warrant. So that creates some problems for New York because other jurisdictions are like, can we see your arrest warrant? Oh, we don't have one. You're just going to have to trust us that we have probable cause. And other jurisdictions would get nervous. Well, like, well, what if something bad happens during this apprehension? And they would get all nervous about it. A lot of them didn't want to help us after that. Yeah, and Mr. Bloom seems to think that without DNA, they could not have ever arrested Koberger and that the DNA was the only thing that re that really mattered. No, there were so many other things that mattered. Um, he's not a criminologist. He's not a, uh, a, a, a detective. He's not a homicide investigator. He was a little bit inaccurate in that first statement he made. Absolutely. He's actually inaccurate in a lot of the things he says. <laughs> they had touch DNA, and they had no, no way to tie that to Koberger. And the Idaho lab came up with this idea of using a separate lab in Texas. This lab had specialized in proprietary devices that made what is called kinship DNA. I think he's wrong with that, too. I think it's called familial DNA. Yes. I never heard it referred to as kinship DNA. I don't know where he got that from. It's familial DNA. Uh, you, you could figure out a relative of the, of the DNA that you already had. And they, this lab was set up to investigate unsolved murders. It was backed by some Silicon Valley venture capitalists. It was a never before used in an in a present case, just at only in cold cases. So, so, so let me just interrupt you. Sorry to interrupt you, oh, but I, you're saying this lab that they sent the knife sheath to has never been used before except in cold cases? Yes, this was the first time they were willing to take a chance. See, I, I don't buy that either. No, I don't know where no. he got that from. Because no, first of all, here you, here you have C.C. Moore solving these cases all over the country with this same exact technique. So right. how is he coming up with this? They've never solved this. I don't know where he got that from. I no. really don't. No, the it's a it's a, the the company he's talking about has has the 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 most state of the art uh, scientific machinery and technique, and they've done a lot of work with police departments. But one of their specialties is creating the family trees, that genetic genealogy uh, from generations, and so. Mm -hmm. They can do cold cases. They can do family trees. You know, the DNA sample is a DNA sample, whether it's uh, a skin cell, whether it's, it's, it's spit, it's urine, saliva, or blood. And if it's, it could be on a piece of evidence that's 25 years old in a police locker, but has been well taken care of, they may be able to get DNA from there to solve a cold case squad, a uh, cold case. But yeah, Mr. Bloom is kind of, uh, kind of, exaggerating a little bit but also cc moore has a, a company called parabon and she does this all the time too mm -hmm. but i don't know if now the, the state of the the art is this company authram that is in texas and they did do the work for this and mm -hmm. a big thing was made out of the fact that oh the defense could uh you know make you know, poke holes in this and we said no they can't mm -hmm. As long as this was collected legally, invoiced mm -hmm. properly, and the chain of custody is kept intact, this is, they'll have no problem at all.
But, right. you know, we hear sometimes people making up stuff and people that aren't in the know, they don't question it because they think this guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. So, so long and so long as the techniques used to uh, analyze the DNA have been considered reliable. And of course, genetic genealogy we know is reliable. Uh, there's no problem. I think people just want to believe on some levels that Idaho, the Idaho taking of the of the sheath with the uh, with this uh, touch DNA somehow is incapable or, or, you know, and doesn't really have a case. It's, just, it's a strange thing. They're bending over backwards to try to figure out a way that Brian Koberg's DNA or the DNA that was taken from the sheath isn't indicative of Brian Koberger. It's crazy. Right. And they wanted desperately to make an arrest. They wanted desperately. You know, that, that's what, that just kills me where he's going. They wanted, of course they wanted to make an arrest. The, the person that, they arrested, killed four people. So, yeah. like, what are you? He's he's harping on this. They wanted, to, yeah, they did, but they did it with probable cause, which is legal. He's acting like they did something illegal, you know? Right, like they didn't have any other Legal any other evidence at all. The suspect to this knife sheath. So, meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, they gathered. They had that midnight garbage run. Right. They picked up garbage that was the father's DNA. They could then send that to the lab, tie it to the knife sheath, and they could make this kinship. And now they could say within, you know, 0.99.9% right. positive. I, I just want to zero in, um, Howard, on this Texas lab, because this is new information that you've reported that I didn't know until you, you reported it. When you say never before done uh, technology that they're using, you know, that it's only been used on cold cases, I mean, couldn't this be an issue for the I, I don't think that's true. I really don't think that. And he does a little tap dance here when he's asked this because I don't think it's true. He does. He changes, it seems too. like something the defense could really zero in on. Why did the knife sheath get sent to this lab that has never I, done this I, kind of work? I don't before? think so. I actually think it will reinforce uh, the prosecution's case. This lab is very respectable. Their cases, their evidence has been there. The methodology has been held up in court time after time, and I think this reinforces the prosecution's case. I, I, I don't think it will be, it's not a positive for Koberger. Let me ask you, because we did a story at the Idaho Crime Lab, looked very advanced. It was our understanding at the time that they were the ones doing all of the testing. Um, why would they need to send it to Texas? They did not have the DNA that could prove kinship, relationship. See, that's all wrong. That what he's saying now is total wrong, totally wrong, totally, and absolutely, hundred percent. And wrong. only this lab in Texas had the proprietary uh, mechanism to do this. In but CC Moore does this all the time, so how, she doesn't work at that Texas lab. So how is what he's saying is not true? It's totally inaccurate. In fact, way before uh, the the Koberger the case, the state of Idaho had made signed a contract with this lab in case something came up in a cold case to use this lab's facilities. And now they came up with the idea, I don't know whose idea it was in Idaho, but let's send it to this lab to get what we needed. Therefore, they had the garbage run in Pennsylvania uh, where they stayed. 
You know, that bothers me too, the whole garbage run thing. I just, uh, it, it just, it, it's so arrogant. You know, they had the garbage run. Dude, dude, first of all, figure out what you're talking about first. You're out of your league. And, and you know, it's like the garbage run. They were collecting potential exemplars for DNA. And he's right. he's calling it a garbage run, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't he, know. Just, he, he's actually, I think he's kind of tripping himself up couple of times when he's trying to tap dance around around Brian Enton's um, question. You know, they were actually uh, watching, you know, Brian Koberger from the time he departed um, Washington State University at the time he arrived in Pennsylvania, because we know that with the Indiana traffic stop and they're watching him for at least 72 hours. So this was, you know, they had numerous occasions to, uh, you know, try to get some sort of uh, you know, a, a piece of garbage, uh, some sort, something with the DNA. So it wasn't like it was a single shot. They had a one in a million shot, and they just drove down there at three o'clock in the morning and grabbed the stuff and ran, and that was it. No, 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 no. Right, he was under surveillance. Uh, yeah. and, you know, look, and he was pulled over twice on the way down yeah. to Pennsylvania, which I say was choreographed. The FBI says it wasn't. Nah. I still think I'm right. Schmitty, right. thank you for the five dollar super sticker. You both are gold. I miss Detective Phil. I'm at the point where I take Don Salami, especially well over this garbage run Bloom guy. <laughs> well, you know, Bloom's writing a book, and so is James Patterson on this case that has yet to be gone to trial or anything like that, you know? So it's uh, that's where what the initial topic of this show is, the, the, the uh, gag order. So many people are looking to get enriched off of this case that especially the media, they want this gag order lifted because they're salivating over the things that they don't know that they then could find out. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in a New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer and a fantastic defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. You can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. Or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. In addition to being a fantastic attorney, Joe Murray is a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast right from the very beginning. Thank you, Joe, for all you do for us. So, folks, you know, one of the things, again, we were, that we were on this gag order. And no small part of this gag order is cameras in the courtroom. I have certain feelings about cameras in the courtroom. I have a feeling... This judge, John Judge, and that's actually his name, Judge John Judge. I have a feeling he's going to split split the baby, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I believe he's going to allow the cameras in the courtroom with certain restrictions. Um, I think he'll continue uh, the gag order uh, for the prosecution and, and the defense. But however, that he may loosen it up a little bit, potentially... He could loosen it up regarding Steve Gonsalves and his attorney, Shannon Gray, and, of course, his, his wife, Christy. I, there's a potential he could do that. But there's dangers of doing that, of, uh, you know, re relaxing the gag order. Uh, we mentioned the, 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 how difficult it will be to get an impartial jury in this case. But I have a feeling that uh, – he's going to allow cameras in the courtroom and not for no other reason than just the way he's uh, responded to some of these questions from these attorneys. Mike, your thoughts. 
Yeah, Bill, I think if he's going to, um, you know, modify the gag order, he may modify it once the jury's impaneled and the trial begins because there'll be so much media coverage anyway for the case. Uh, however, he may modify it slightly even with that uh, because there the Gonsalves uh, family and the other families may actually uh, testify if Koberg was found guilty, they may testify at the uh, death penalty phase of the trial at the end, if that is was to occur. So they may actually take some sort of testimony from them. So it, there is a uh, chance that those family members may actually be sworn in and give sworn testimony uh, in a penalty phase. Um, so he may, uh, the judge, judge, John C. Judge, may actually um, modify that before trial, the gag order before trial. Um, as far as cameras in the courtroom, I, I think it's doable, um, a, but do it like they did with, the, say, another very famous trial from two years ago, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, where there was a single camera and was focused only on the judge and the witness, and that you could not see the attorneys really that well. You couldn't see the defense table. You couldn't see the attorney's tables. You couldn't see the jury at all. You couldn't see the uh the, the, the people who gathered to watch the trial. Um, I think that's something that would probably, like you say, the Solomonic choice, you know, how do you split the baby? What do you do? Um, I think that might be an acceptable choice to everyone. I'm not sure if they would film it uh, or videotape it and present it to the public the way the Murdoch case was done from having the camera like behind you know, so it was like two cameras in the courtroom. I think one was from behind, another was from showing the, all the people in the uh, in the courthouse, in the courtroom. But um, I think you're right. Um, and if I'm him, you know, it's tough. Um, you want to give the public access to this case, but you want to do it in a way that it doesn't turn it into a circus like the O.J. Simpson case. And you and I are old enough to remember what a nightmare that case was while it was ongoing, it was it was a circus. No, absolutely. I think that the prosecutors, the defense, the witnesses, everyone played to the cameras mm -hmm. and it, it, it became like like a show. Mm -hmm. Folks, I just want to say, like, I see a lot of people in the chat. We our system is, of course, Brian Koberger is innocent until proven guilty. What we're talking about tonight is the gag order. We're talking about some of the evidence. And we still realize that our system says he's innocent to proven guilty, but he also was arrested based on probable cause. He's the one sitting in that seat right now. And supposedly on October 2nd, which I still doubt it will occur, the trial is going to begin. I believe on October 2nd, they're going to show up to court and it's going to be put off probably till 2024, 2024 at some time. That's just my thoughts because this is a huge case. It's also a death penalty case, which makes it tougher to impanel a jury because the people that are impaneled have to be pro-death penalty. I didn't really know that that that, that was a yeah. factor. No, I've never been on a death penalty case in New York City. I've never been. Yeah, on yeah. So, yeah. The okay, uh, in, in certain counties in New York City, even though it was the state law, they wouldn't go for the death penalty. That's right. Manhattan, yeah. Manhattan was one of them. Right. It's a hot potato topic for in many states. But, um, yeah, the Supreme Court decided this case years ago. The uh, the prosecution cannot be handicapped um, by having jurors uh, 
who would never consider the death penalty. You, you have, they, they have to, uh, as a, in the penalty phase at the, at the second half of the trial at the very end. Um, so therefore every juror actually has to be able to say under oath that they'll, A, they'll give Mr. Koberger and the prosecution both, they'll give them the fullest attention. They'll hold off judgment until, you know, they, Mr. Koberger presents his case, but they are willing to listen to both sides in the death penalty phase and, you know, and that they're not totally right off the bat already, you know, I, I'm not, I would never, ever vote. I could find him guilty, but I would never vote for the death penalty. Uh, and many people feel that way, but the, that is not the kind of person that would be able to sit on a uh, death penalty jury in this case. Absolutely. Uh, Jenny, Sergeant Bill, I see a lot of people saying the DNA will be thrown out because the sample is too small for the defense to be able to test. They have to be able to test evidence. Is this true or not? It's absolutely not true. Uh, the, if the defense chooses to test this DNA, they would have to go to a lab similar, but they probably wouldn't use the same lab, the Othram, maybe Parabon, which CC Moore works for, and have them test it. But if, uh, you know, it's probably doubtful that they would retest it uh, anyway. But first of all, there's going to be other DNA, I believe. Oh, absolutely. Parity. You're right. You're right. There'll be plenty of, there'll be a number of DNA samples. So I don't think that, as I said earlier, and I didn't mean to say it in the way I said it, if they lost the knife sheath <laughs> in regards to the judge throwing it out for the fruits of the poisonous tree or something like that reason, uh, it being excluded for a procedural reason, do they still have enough evidentiary material to still get a conviction? Look, we don't know... One of the things I hop on a lot of times, we've never gotten the results of the autopsies. That's where evidence exchange occurs. We've said it a million times, underneath the fingernails of the victims, they were fighting, they were resisting. They could have his skin underneath their fingernails. If that's the case, you know, and I'm not going to say if the case is over, but that's extremely strong evidence. You know, uh, we've never gotten the results so that's a ton of evidence right there the autopsy of autopsies of four victims and the potentiality of the amount of evidence in that is just mind-boggling yeah billy there's as you say there's there's plenty of evidence to, and it could probably consist of other skin cells uh there may be some bloody fingerprints there's that bloody footprint you've got uh the uh exchange as low card you know the exchange that he may have uh, sweated on them uh, spit on them his blood is on them uh you know all over their sheets and things like that i don't be graphic but you know that's what you have to deal with um so the uh, the idea that because he had on some sort of like maybe maybe like one of those you know like, like a tyvek suit like a tyvek suit yeah, type of yeah. Thing. yeah i mean you know, no, you're not going to go, you're not going to have that sort of thing. I mean, other than that, even with a Tyvek suit, if people are struggling and they scratch you, you know, where you're, where you're, uh, where the rubber glove meets your hand or something like that, or they scratch your face. Oh, come on. Yeah. There's going to be some exchange of DNA and even a, a bloody footprint or something like that uh, on uh, going in, going out of the, uh, of, of the, of the, uh, of the home. Yeah, the idea that he could almost walk around in some sort of like Tyvek suit, uh, commit these homicides and not leave a single 
bit of his own DNA in there would, would be would be something out of science fiction novel. Absolutely. It's Mimi. I love this. I have seen so many people question that he could kill four people in 16 minutes. Do you think that's possible? Absolutely possible. They were sleeping. How difficult it is to kill someone who's sleeping. They may have woken up once they were stabbed, but yeah, absolutely. I don't believe these amateur sleuths that are telling you, oh, it couldn't happen. They don't know what they're talking about. They really don't. I hate to put it so bluntly, but that's absolutely true. They do not know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, ask them, no ask these amateur sleuths how many murder scenes they've been to, you know, if you want to follow up a question to them. Yeah. Ask them about their experience, and, and then, then they can they can hang their PhD on the wall that they've been to, you know, like Barbara Butcher, 680 murder scenes, you know. Someone like that tells you that, then maybe you got to start believing it, you know. But when someone has, you ask them how many murder scenes you've been to, uh, 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 they start dribbling like Howard Bloom, you know, and uh, you know it's 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 just it's not it doesn't pass the smell test as they say. Yeah, Billy, it, you know people worry about that. That's oh, there was only like a possible twelve minute, sixteen minute, you know, eight minute window of opportunity. As you say, they were asleep. They're not moving. They're defenseless. So he got to jump on them. And if you, I don't mean to be graphic, but if you stab somebody, you know, through the lung or through the heart, they will be very, they won't be able to catch a breath. They'll probably be unconscious very quickly. So yeah, you know, I, I didn't really have too much hard time believing it had happened. Yeah. It's, it's, they're, they're asleep and you've got to jump on them and you've got the adrenaline. You absolutely. So uh, those people who think that a hum one human being motivated could not kill four people with a huge hunting knife in, in like 10 minutes. No, they can do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to play a little bit of this and then we'll probably call this a night. You know, I don't know that anybody outside of that investigative bubble really knows at this point in time. And everything that we say is highly speculative. However, there's okay. indication that there's social media interaction on some level, whether it was the victims interacting with him or him taking notice of them, it is quite compelling, uh, I think. And, and so that's going to be, again, another bit of circumstantial evidence that might point back to some kind of at least perceived uh, relationship that he may have had with, with one or more of these targets, uh, victims rather, at the scene. I think it's important that we note, too, that we, we don't really know much about, uh, we know what we know from the probable cause affidavit. We don't know what the prosecution is claiming at this point in time, other than they say it was Brian Koberger. He, of course, uh, is maintaining his innocence. He says he hopes to be exonerated, and they are moving toward trial, and they will be fighting this as far as, as we can tell. Michael, I want to go to you for our next question. It comes from... Um, it comes from Jams Row from or Jams Row from YouTube. Do cameras really have that much of an influence over a jury? And Michael, the reason I throw this one to you is because you covered O.J. Simpson and the O.J. Simpson case. So, do you think that cameras really have that much of an impact on jurors who are in the courtroom hearing the case and hearing the evidence? Yeah, that's a good question, and and it really comes down to the individual jurors. And I'm not talking about, you know, the run-up to the trial, because anybody in the jury pool arguably can be affected by the 
publicity prior to being seated on the uh, in the box. Once they're in the box, hopefully they're not watching or listening to any of that stuff. They're not supposed to. But the physical setting in the courtroom, cameras, uh, you know, even just one camera, and I know in Idaho that's their law, one camera still and in, in video. We're not going to have multiples at best. Uh, it, it does create a different feel. It feels like, uh, you know, you're part of a TV show because, well, you are. So I don't know that it's a negative impact, but it would be wrong to say there isn't some impact, that it doesn't affect jurors in some way, that maybe they're more concerned about uh, being identified sooner rather than later. It has an impact. Uh, I think we would all be arguing today it's not a negative impact. I mean, that's kind of the nature of the, uh, the uh, arguments in front of the court today. So we spoke about this earlier, and I think that the cameras in the courtroom have a tremendous impact uh, on the jury and uh, on the prosecutor, on the defense, on all the witnesses, because it's impossible for them not to be aware. In this case, it will go out probably internationally, not just nationally. It'll be on everyone's TV across the world. So for someone who's a witness or a prosecutor or a defense attorney, they're aware of that. They're absolutely aware of that. And we saw it uh, firsthand in the OJ case. And I thought it had a detrimental. Uh, it was even sort of like show business, Johnny Cochran. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. You know, like people started making rap rhymes. And, in in you know, oh, same thing with OJ trying on the glove that it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. He made a big show of it, you know. Right. And would it have been the same if cameras were not in the courtroom? Uh, St. Marsha Clark, the prosecutor, she played to those cameras all the time, you know, and it does have an effect, whether it's positive or negative, you decide, our listening audience. <laughs> Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, we just hope Judge Judge um, is very, very careful with allowing a, a, a camera, if he does allow a camera in, and, and um, warn, you know, the defense and prosecution that he will you know, abide by no messing around and showboating or or anything other than the most professional conduct. I'm sure he'll have a very quiet in his office meeting ahead of time. And, uh, uh, you know, Judge Ito in the uh, OJ case, he's he's he lost he lost control of the courtroom. He, he did. And uh, to the point where they were only, I think, taking testimony like three hours a day or something like that, rather than like eight hours because of, of uh, other considerations that kind of got in the way. He, he and it, it was sad not to say that the jury would have come back with any different conclusion than they did, but uh, it, it was at the time in 1995, I think it was um, the, one of the, you know, it was the, uh, the mur murder trial of the century and it, it got out of control he really? also, he allowed too much latitude. He had uh, Barry Sheck and his team of DNA assassins interview this one witness for like a week. No, a New York judge would be like, all right, move on. You got three right. hours out. You're done. You know, right. and right. They, they sort of destroyed this guy because they let him have him for like a week. It was, it was, it was a joke, actually. It was, it was crazy. I yeah. remember that. And you're a And I remember F. Lee Bailey said mm -hmm. to Judge Ito, Judge Ito, you're one of the finest jurors and jurisprudence and judge Edel like gushed rather than say all right counselor stop laying it on so you know what i mean right. he took it in like oh thank you so much you know it's like <laughs> you can't no. let that happen 
Folks, we've been on for an hour and 23 minutes. It went so fast. I want to thank everyone that tuned in tonight. Uh, just some interesting stuff. And you know, we try to give you it from our point of view, a, a police perspective. And a scientific point of view, you have people like Cece Moore on that is, you know, she's like the godmother of DNA now. She's probably one of the most famous scientists now. Probably this is, you know, Louis Pasteur, you know, uh, Madame Curie. She's going to go down in history as someone like that, believe it or not. I mean, we're at the epicenter of, of, of scientific history with this. And I'm not oh, I'm not laying it on too thick, I don't think. Uh, this is an incredible thing. Uh, huge advancements in DNA that are doing unbelievable things. Again, folks, if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and uh, join the Police Off the Cuff family. Mike, final thoughts. Billy, I always say, you know, one of the things I always say is patience. And I just would ask everyone to have patience and not, you know, access crazy uh, conspiracy, conspiracy stories on the Internet and people who uh, like, you know, that's just stuff's bad. You know, stick with us. We'll give you the, the absolute cops, homicide detectives, you know, that I view that perspective of this case. Have patience. Mike, you're like a priest, you know, <laughs> a Come priest with a, God. you're like a priest, father, father Geary is a priest with a law degree, a former police sergeant and a professor all in one. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Have a great night and God bless. One episode.